This might get silly. Yeah. Just a wee bit, eh? <laughs> this might get silly. Ah, but yeah. Uh, anyways, are you, you ready to rock and roll whenever you're ready? Awesome. Uh, well, uh, welcome back to the Hermes Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about manufacturing and what we do here. Uh, I guess we'll start out with some brief in- intros here. Uh, Glenn K, CTO, uh, you've heard me yap a bunch of times on these podcasts, so I'll save you the, the intro for me. But we have some very distinguished, distinguished guests, extinguished, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some very distinguished guests here today. Uh, some have been on the podcast before, but uh, I'll let them uh, introduce themselves. Uh, hi, my name is Chris Stavron. Uh I am the Hermes professional underwater basket weaver and part-time <laughs> world-class assassin. <laughs> and uh, that gets translated as uh, one of our badass uh, mechanical techs here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Ellen Lonergan, uh, manager of manufacturing engineering. Uh, my name is Tony O. Martinez, and I'm a VP of production at Hermes. Yeah, so... Awesome. Uh, Antonio, uh, you know, I don't know if you've given your background, uh, you know, before, but uh, he's actually undersold the heck out of himself there (laughs) in terms of that. Uh, Worked on the X-51, correct? I mean, dig deep a little bit. Yeah, sure. I I spent 12 years working at uh, Boeing Phantom Works, uh, developing, working as part of the Advanced Structures and Manufacturing Technology Group. And uh, during that tenure, I worked on some uh, some pretty cool projects. Uh, of course, the highlight is the X-51, which was a hypersonic scramjet-powered uh, vehicle that flew at Mach 5, running on JP-7 fuel for like five minutes. There was no manufacturing problems there at all. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> you know, we, yeah, we were using, you know, and, and that's, that's part of the, what, what makes... And I'm going to jump back to a little more history, but that's part of what makes working at Hermes and what we're seeking to accomplish. The most interesting is that from a manufacturing standpoint, that's where a lot of the challenges are, especially as we start pushing into either new materials or new processes, figuring out what those things are, getting them certified, making sure that they're going to work, test validation. You know, it aligns really well with our hardware, hardware rich approach. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really sort of one of the biggest drivers for me to join this company was the manufacturing challenges. Um, in, in my previous roles, we've, I've worked on a number of things, and, uh, including robotic drilling uh, of titanium assemblies uh, for the C-17 transport aircraft, which can hinge its, its wing flaps into the jet stream and actually back up a two-degree two ramp fully loaded. So, um, you know, that's... that's uh, a pretty high temperature application, and and we're pushing even even beyond that. And so to be working uh, in an environment where we're facing these really difficult environments, and um, and have to use some materials which are either emerging or whose um, manufacturing technologies are a little bit aged. It's just right for us to come in and, yeah. and, and fix a lot of these things. Yeah, certainly we're going to talk about that with like 18,000 uh, holes that we're going to have to drill in this <laughs> airframe to uh, make a plane. That might be uh, an important thing to know about. But I did want to turn the table over a little bit to Ellen here and talk about her background. Uh, you know, she is probably also one of my favorite hires and the <laughs> fact that she was able to I was able to lo- offload a lot of the the factory manufacturing uh, and, you know, what she's in charge of and making sure we have all the right tools and, 
and managing all the right people to get the things made. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background at ABL and yeah. and anything there. Yeah, so uh, kind of came into like a similar role at ABL where or I started out here as like a senior additive engineer. So my background's in uh, additive manufacturing, so metal 3D printing. Um, and, and like Glenn said, have kind of come to slowly own more and more. Uh, similar at ABL kind of ran additive and the machine shop. Um, and that was a, a big step for me. I'd never really worked in CNC machining before. And that was kind of just, it, it was another startup and uh, lots of work to go around. So ended up kind of owning that as well. Uh, and, and definitely came to love CNC machining, honestly, just as much as I love additive um, and grew a lot in that role. And I think it helped me here uh, be a lot more comfortable in, you know, being like, Glenn, I, you know, I, I've done this before. Let me take this off your plate um, and kind of working from there. And it was pretty, pretty seamless transition, I think, from um, those first that first CNC machine we have to now, you know, having five at the end of this month so um oh. it's it's pretty exciting to and, see and we're gonna have to cut in this video at, at some point and actually show some of the machines that we have <laughs> that, that'll be actually pretty cool yeah um yeah. but yeah and beyond that and of course chris here uh <laughs> i think everyone in this world knows who you are uh, they should at least well they've heard my name a few times on the podcast at least <laughs> they, now they have a face to go with yeah, right but uh you know it comes to us from spacex right and Ooh. uh but uh you know, I think when I was when I was interviewing you, one of the the things I always ask is, you know, tell me about a time you put an engineer in his place, and you did not disappoint there. <laughs> uh, that's always what I ask first off is, you know, I want to make sure I have people that are making the things, telling the people that are designing the things what the real business is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a that's a big part of the role as a technician, especially. Uh, when you're in an area that you're dealing with brand new design, brand new uh, technology, um, and everyone's just kind of trying to work together to, to make the different Lego pieces fit together, if you will. Can I say Lego? Mm. <laughs> Fair use. Yeah. Um, so I came from uh, immediately from SpaceX. Um, so I started off in uh, Hawthorne. I was doing uh, research and development on the life support systems for Crew Dragon. Um, and I really cut my teeth in fabrication and manufacturing in that area and learned a ton about what goes into actually building a thing from start to finish. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, finished uh, research and development and the decision was go to production or find a different department. Uh, <laughs> so my next department was in uh, thermal. So I transferred over to the Cape, uh, worked on developing the Starship heat shield tiles and helping them stand up their facility from, you know, demolishing everything that was there. It was a NASA refurb facility for um, Space Shuttle. Oh, cool. um, so like some of the walls that we brought down, they had lead panels in between the drywall <laughs> uh, for like their test room so that if anything did explode, it didn't make it out. Nice. Um, uh, yeah, so I was there for uh, probably a year and a half um, helping them set up all their CNC machines, the kilns, the ovens. Um, ended up running the manufacturing and maintenance, or excuse me, the fabrication and maintenance uh, kind of department there, helping modify the machines, fix them whenever they go down and, and whatnot. Um, found this opportunity uh, <laughs> through a friend of a friend. Um, <laughs> I was looking to uh, kind of get back to Georgia, this is where I'm from. And uh, I was talking to one of my engineer friends because he had uh, started his own business after he left SpaceX. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him, I was like, okay, so I know 
when you start your own business, you are poor for a while. Oh, I'm still poor. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't change, does it? No. <laughs> and so I just kind of asked him, I was like, you know, what are the heartaches that you went through? And, and, and in that conversation, he said, you know, I, I know this company. Uh, one of my friends works at it. It's in Atlanta. I know you're trying to get back to Georgia. Um, so I checked it out and it was, um, with all due respect, very, very bare bones oh. website. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was also probably eight of us at the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I just forwarded uh, my resume along. And I don't even think that you guys were looking for a tech at the time. No, I don't think we were either. But I was like, a superstar like this, I need to talk to him. <laughs> hey. There's a little bit of a bromance going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely. Site 2.7. What happens yeah. there stays there. <laughs> But yeah, no, so um, and I do want to ask this question, um, and the answer, I will not take offense if it's not something that we have made here at Hermius, but what is the, the coolest thing that you've ever made? And it also doesn't have to be hypersonics. We've already talked about X-51, so I'm going to exclude that from you. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, <clears throat> I would say the Ram burner, but that thing actually gets really hot. <laughs> um uh, I would say, and probably until we get, uh, um, gosh, probably until we get quarter horse in the air, uh, up until that point, the coolest thing that I would have worked on, I think would be, um, crew dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got in there, I worked at the program for four years. Uh, the, one of the things that we built was, uh, what's known as the Eclis module. So we put all the life support systems inside a stripped down show version of dragon and then tested them all at the same time with people in there, you know, giving it different uh, CO2 loads, giving it different temperature and humidity loads Mm -hmm. and seeing how the system reacts and then um, being able to modify anything that does need to be modified and then just pushing it out. And now, uh, what are we at? Crew five now. So that's probably six or seven launches with people on them. Yeah. So it's pretty awesome. It just launched last night, right? It certainly did. Yep. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, for Hermes, it, it's the coolest thing I've ever built, I think, is just seeing the factory being built. Mm. Um, and it's obviously not done yet, but every day it looks different. Every day it's different. And it, it's, Absolutely. It's cool to see it like evolve and grow. I mean, I went on vacation last week and uh, I came back and all of a sudden the, the entire manufacturing row over there is just <laughs> operating. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, after, um, after Boeing, I went to SpaceX as well. And uh, worked on the Dragon vehicle. And um, we built uh, the very first Dragon that went up was a pretty rough vehicle. And so the uh, second Dragon, we spent uh, probably nine months or so going through sort of a manufacturing overhaul so that we could improve the manufacturing quality of the, the capsules. And... Um, it was super challenging, but also super rewarding because, um, you know, we were kind of measuring our own ability to make these things happen by measuring gaps between parts and things mm-hmm. like that, that, uh, you know, we were pretty happy. And then same thing going from the crew dragon or cargo dragon to crew dragon. Um, I was involved, I was still at SpaceX when we unveiled the dragon we had mm-hmm. to, you know, the, um, it was, it was one of those things where, 
we didn't get a lot of times the internal communications at that company actually came from Elon twi- Twitter, his <laughs> Twitter feed. <laughs> so he tweet, he t- tweeted to the world, we're going to unveil Dragon in 30 days. And that's all of a sudden it's like all over the <laughs> com- well, company. We hey, guys and gals, I guess we're unveiling Dragon in 30 <laughs> days <laughs> to finish this thing. And so we were hustling to get it, get it done. Uh, I worked on the uh, thermal protection system panels around the outside of the vehicle. And, and my goal was to have a t- quarter inch gap plus, minor f- my plus or minus 50 thousandths. And we pretty much hit it. Uh, based on sort of the manufacturing learning. And, and so it kind of underscores the value of, of iterating and learning what you didn't know you didn't know right. so that you can make things in the future that much better. Right. Well, one of my favorite uh, things in my past, and it, it's relatively mundane, but it was really cool to see happen. So that was, um, you know, uh, I probably can't talk too much about it, but let's just say it was an injector of a rocket company that I worked at. <laughs> um, we'd get some FOD and some very, very uh, tight uh, annuli, and uh, we need to get that FOD gone. And this annulus was just somewhere around like 7,000-ish in that neighborhood, very tiny. Uh, and it was cylindrical, right? Uh, let's call it a coaxial injector. Maybe it was that, maybe it wasn't. Um, but... Uh, you know, we wanted to burn it out with EDM. How do you do that, right? And so it was a seven thou annulus, and we so we machined this graphite uh, sinker electrode to a five thousandths thick wall thickness, and carefully <laughs> aligned it, and then burned it in so that we wouldn't affect this. You know, the actual uh, hydraulic diameter of the, the the annulus, and that just to see ourselves being able to fabricate that type of an electrode and then be able to use it uh, and burn and, and sink or EDM, uh, that, that injector was, was quite interesting. It took forever. It literally <laughs> took three or four hours just for one injector to, you know, to, to EDM out. But, um, hey, it worked. But that's pretty cool because I think that's, like, smaller than the diameter of a human hair. Well, at 5,000, you can barely feel that as, like, a 5,000 scratch or yeah. a difference. You can, that's right at the edge of where you can actually feel and touch and feel the difference, right? And so it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty small, uh, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, but, uh, okay, so with, that's your past, right? Yeah. So what is the coolest thing that you're working on right now? What are you doing right now at Hermes? Ellen, I'm going to point to you first and switch <laughs> up the order. Uh, well, something cool that I'm getting to work on, which I think is very different than any other company, is like setting up the foundational system of how we're going to track manufacturing tasks on mm-hmm. the floor. So. A lot of times you go into a GE or a Boeing or a big company like that, and they already have their enterprise resource system in in place, and it probably sucks. Oh, Um, it definitely sucks. (laughs) So I think one of the coolest parts about my job, too, is is being a part of setting up a system like that to work for Hermes specifically. Um, And the kind of creativity that goes into that and, and thinking about the processes before we're even doing them uh, and, and having people like all these guys to to weigh in on their past experiences with ERPs that they've worked with. And everyone um, has a pain point. Oh, yeah. Yes. And it, it's definitely 
it's frustrating at times, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's super fun and you definitely come, you definitely leave the day feeling like you've done something to move the company forward. Um, and I think that's a super powerful thing and it's something I wouldn't get to work on anywhere else. Right. I, um, I, th- I think it's, well, it's one of those things where we chose, I don't know, about a year ago, maybe six months to a year ago to develop an ERP system internally instead of developing, instead of buying one off the shelf right and and that was based around a lot of experience of just like every time i've used a commercial off the shelf (laughs) code for erp it does too much Mm -hmm. compared to what you want it doesn't do exactly what you want it does it can do it but it's not right Uh, and i think what we're trying to do is so specialized and, and and important that you know we've got to develop our own now that comes with the yin the yang of you don't have something that can do everything right away. Right. So now you have to figure out, okay, well, what is the bare minimum? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the rub comes in yeah. is that what is the bare minimum that the ERP needs to do in terms of manufacturing and, and you know, process flow and whatnot and help make us an airplane because we can't staff up enough to make a right off, you know, full blown ERP system that helps do what we need to do right away. We got to kind of crawl, walk, run into it, and it's mm-hmm. it's a fascinating uh, thing. I never thought I would be in a you know uh, <laughs> a position to make a major piece of software like that, but yeah. uh, you know it's it's going to be cool. Maybe we sell it afterwards. You know, Her- Hermia Software. <laughs> There's a lot more uh, psychology that goes into oh, it than I thought yes. there would be. <laughs> <laughs> Convincing everyone. Yeah. Oh man, Every, engineering problems are easy. Yeah. It's the uh, people problems yeah. that are hard. <laughs> Makes it fun, though. Yeah. Chris. Oh, uh, let's see. Coolest thing I'm working on at Hermes this week. <laughs> um, I'd say what I really enjoy um, currently is working with uh, our team of technicians. Um, so they've been uh, working to help build out um, our lanes where we're actually going to manufacture uh, at least quarter horse. Um and so we've got, you know, guys that are in charge of engines, guys that are in charge of structures, integration, fluids, clean room, all that. Um, and just helping them with the experience that I have um, kind of push things towards a more, uh, I guess, professional manufacturing environment, if you will. Um, so we've got the big machines and we've got the toolboxes and we've got the tools and everything's laid out nice and the workflow makes sense. Um, and really just taking the opportunity to both learn from my team and teach them things that I know. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is if you, for this podcast, if we were to take a time lapse <laughs> of what's in the background, how much <laughs> it would have changed. Uh, it's going to be interesting, too, because where we're sitting right now in a few weeks, mm. we won't be able to sit here because <laughs> we're actually building out uh, a lot more office space. So this this place is going to have to move and maybe we'll be at a place we can oversee the floor a little bit more. Oh, that'll yeah. be interesting that'd be nice oh uh, yeah tonio what about you man what you've been working on yeah well, been, i know but you <laughs> tell everybody <laughs> sure i've been i've been working on um a uh airframe manufacturing demonstrator uh one of the things that we have realized early on is that um you know we have to use a lot of titanium on this vehicle and the traditional manufacturing processes for titanium are extremely long it takes a long time. They rely on tools, conventional toolings to create the form. Um, you have to make these tools and it takes a mm-hmm. long time and they're expensive. And then they only make that one part. That's right. And, uh, you know, Ellen um, 
mentioned her background in additive manufacturing, and we have an entire manufacturing cell that's <clears throat> that's being developed now. Um, and there are new uh, titanium alloys that are coming available, and there are new forming technologies, and in this case, robotic mm -hmm. uh, panel forming. So what we're going to do is we're going to use robots to form panels without any tools, and we're going to use additive manufacturing to create stringers without any tooling. Right. And, uh, and we're going to try to put it together. And, or I should say, we're <coughs> going to put it together. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. so I, I do want to key on how important that is for our vehicle, or at least the way that we design vehicles, right? We really care about the iteration, right? Uh, what we call Mark 1, Mark 2 of uh, Quarter Horse. Between those two iterations, Mark 3, 4, 5, what, however many there, is, there are, there will be significant changes to not only the internals, but the OML as well, the outer mode line. So having a tool that would be typically used for like hot stamping or hot press forming uh, a skin panel, well, we might, that might change. Most of the tooling might be completely obsolete by the second iteration. And so amortizing that tooling over one unit that's not a very good business decision, right? And so uh, having those those technologies that are, allow us to go toolless, which is something that, uh, you know, Tonio has like, almost like prided the last, <laughs> you know, half decade or more uh, in your career, that that's an, that is an important thing for us to make a quality, low-cost, you know, manufacturing process. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty exciting because, you know, <clears throat> Working with Ellen's team and Chris's team and the engineering team as well, um, you know, I'm I'm definitely pushing, but these these guys are really taking ownership of of the various aspects of it. And uh, what's going to be really cool is we're going to put, uh, you know, as Glenn mentioned, we're going to build out the office, which will extend over in here, which means our initial mock-up needs to move, <laughs> and we're going to build a a, a, a two-frame. <clears throat> or three frame section of the, of the aircraft, just sort of at the front end. And so what we're going to do is we're going to position the, the build out on the floor where it would really be if we were really building the aircraft. Right. And then we're going to take this prototype and we're going to put it in the next station for where it would be in final integration, which not only is going to give us a sense of how things are going to really feel on the floor, but it's also going to help, I think, with the momentum of, of sort of the frame of mind as we start right. advancing from from PowerPoints to actually really making the real hardware. Where do we position the toolboxes? Where do we position <laughs> yeah. X, Y, or Z? Right? And, and, and and it's really cool to get out to get out on the floor with with the you know the responsible engineer, the manufacturing engineer, the technicians that are going to be putting it together, and collaboratively and cross functionally be working as equals together to really figure out what makes sense and leveraging everybody's strength. That's like one of the coolest things yeah, ever. That's going to be cool. That's absolutely going to be cool. Um, so uh, moving a little forward from what we've done in the past and what we're doing right now, but what are you excited about in the future here in manufacturing? Quarter horse. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, we've, uh, we've built a uh, Chimera V1. I don't know mm -hmm. if we're going to go with V2 or if it's a V1.0. Oh, it's it's definitely the two, but something <laughs> in between. We, we won't go into details here today. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Chimera was, Chimera was awesome to work on, um, especially once we get it out here. Um, I mean, there's a lot that goes mm -hmm. into it, and um, it's... 
it's simple and complex at the same time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. <laughs> so a lot of the manufacturing techniques is, is, you know, Ellen's wheelhouse. And I think Tony may jump on board there a little bit. Um, but, you know, a lot of stuff is printed. Um, we're mixing that with older um, or more traditional styles of manufacturing, you know, rolling, welding, mm-hmm. bolting things together. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's the key is that, we're, yes, we like to push new technologies, but only when new technologies reduce cost or improve speed to yes. product, right? Just printing it for the sake of printing it isn't necessarily the right answer. <laughs> uh, you know, it's got to buy its way on because of costs, you know, or because well, the types of vehicles we're developing, um, you know, and it's, there's no secret that clearly we're, you know, uh, trying to, you know, fulfill a need on the the uh, DOD side of, you know, solving some national security um, problems. and But we're not going to solve it with, you know, Lockheed Martin prices. <laughs> no. They'll just go to Lockheed Martin for that, right? We have to be a sort of a semi-attributable aircraft, and that means being very, you know, a low-cost alternative to it um, and kind of breaking that mold and what the, the traditional airframe cost would be to the government. And so that's the thing is we can't just print to print um, because it's still very expensive, even if you buy the printer yourself. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, and we're mixing that um, where it makes sense. uh, Learning a lot along the way on, you know, how difficult Inconel can be to to play with. Uh, My previous experience is only with Inconel 2, and I knew that that was already trash to weld. Um, So... Being here uh, with the mad amounts of high temperature materials that we're playing around with is is just amazing. Yeah, uh, we're going to have a good stockpile of titanium. That's for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's we've been in such a very high design phase right now, and I think we haven't been at a point where we're building stuff with the capability that we've brought on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to I'm excited for this next round of, of builds and pathfinders and designs where we're able to so much more quickly work with the new tools and technologies that we have here to uh, print something really quickly and get it swapped out the next day. Whereas we were we had a lot of external dependencies before for the first right. build of Chimera. And I think it'll help us move extremely quickly and learn so much faster um, this next round of, of builds. Uh, and I think we also have brought on a lot of new techs and a lot of great manufacturing backgrounds and knowledge base that we didn't have for those first builds that um, I'm excited to see the difference between the two and in, in how we are able to better design for manufacturability this next right. round um, in, in things simple as like lift points for, for Chimera <laughs> while we're trying to get it into the Notre Dame test cell. But uh, I think it, it, but it's those small things that make a big difference. And I'm excited for the manufacturing team as a whole to um, really be part of that design and, and push it in a better direction. Yeah, and that's one of the, the reasons why I really wanted to champion to, to have, you know, an in-house vertically integrated machine shop is not to make all the parts, right? Because we're never going to be as cheap. Mm as outsourcing it right we're not trying to turn a profit necessarily on those individual parts what we're trying to do is go faster and increase learning and one of the things that stuck with me and what i'm excited about seeing more of is like roshan uh one of our uh, structure engineers 
Yeah, I remember one late one night, um, you know, I walked by his desk and, you know, he was looking at a part and he's like, yeah, you know, I was thinking about trying to make this one, uh, you know, feature a little bit thinner, but I'm worried about, you know, <laughs> spring back because, you know, tool pressure and it not actually cutting and not mm-hmm. being able to confidently cut it this thin. I was like, well, just try why, don't, it. why don't you just try it? We have a <laughs> shop over here. Yeah. And a machine that's not, I think it's not running tomorrow. So yeah. let's go try it. <laughs> yeah. and, and having that ability to, to really learn in the real world and just do, I, I was able to do that at, when I was a young. I got the fortunate ability to be able to do that when I was at Stena Space Center at Blue Origin. Um, oh, wait. I, that, that, that was not the rocket company that I was talking about before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I had the ability to do that. And um, I was very fortunate. That I was able to pick the brains of you know some great machinists, uh, some great manufacturers, and that's so important to, mm-hmm. to to have an organization have that capability in house. But do you have anything? Yeah, you're I mean, forward to? I'm I'm like, I think like Ellen and um, Chris, and I'm sure you, Glenn. I'm like <clears throat> super pumped about building the the first quarter horse. I think it's going to be an adventure for all of us. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to be a learning experience for the team. And, you know, the, the team-based culture at this company, I think, is a huge enabler for this sort of, we're moving forward at risk, we're taking this risk together, but we're going to make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And getting the whole team in that sort of mindset to move forward is going to make a huge difference in our ability to actually execute. And we go from you know, quarter horse Mark one to Mark two. And ultimately, um, as those are uh, successful at what they are setting out to achieve as we move towards dark horse, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think the lights are going to start turning on and the team as a whole, which, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, less experienced engineers who, you know, they're going to get these builds under their belts and they're going to really become some forces of nature uh, working with, you know, the uh, integrated team of, you know, technicians yeah. and manufacturing operations people like this, this company, I'm, I'm just super excited to see those sort of next phases as we, as we really start building hardware. Right. I agree. Uh, I wanted to key off of uh, something that the both of you mentioned in terms of 3D printing is, so is, is it the future or is it overhyped? I'll let you go first. I think Chris would say it's overhyped, but... <laughs> Um, no, I, I do think it's the future and not just like laser powder bed, but I think the DED technology as well. Um, why don't you explain that? Yeah. So DED direct energy deposition. So basically like a robotic welder is, is what we have here. Um, so it's wire fed, uh, programs through a robotic system, uh, basically lays down metal. Um, so relativity uses a similar one. They use more of a, like a MIG. MIG TIG right. type of yeah. welder. We, um, use a, we use a laser. But I do think kind of going back to the quick iteration loop and, and learnings and um, things like additive allow us to break the mold of castings and forgings and needing forming tools. And we wouldn't really be able to be here without additive, I think, uh, in all honesty. A lot of Chimera <laughs> is additive. Um, oh, ladies and gentlemen, if you think <laughs> lead times are bad with just machining parts, you should try to go get a casting <laughs> yeah. right now. Um, and I, I think it allows us to be more lightweight, be more agile. It allows us to rapidly iterate on design. 
Uh, and I, I, I do think it's will become more and more important. And we've kind of already seen that with laser powder bed. And I think that's only mm-hmm. going to uh, expand into the direct energy deposition world as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, oh, man. <laughs> From a person that might. Bus, yeah. I'm a, there we go. Um, so I've done a little uh, additive manufacturing myself, but that was with a TIG torch and steady hands. <laughs> <laughs> no, this man is a genius when it comes to, to welding. He has gotten me out of several jams. Um, so I, something, something fails like, hey, Chris, can you glue it back together for me, buddy? <laughs> yes. I got you. With a couple thousand degrees, I'll do it. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I absolutely love how fast additive manufacturing can turn around parts. Granted, you, know, you run the program, it may need to run overnight, but you're not beholden to a, an outside company right. and their lead times and whatever uh, other jobs that they have going on. Um, so it, it, it absolutely helps us with our goal of trying to get there and get there quickly. Um, makes a lot easier job of some of the more complex parts. Um, so, uh, some of the parts on, on Chimera, I could only imagine how much it would cost if we had those made traditionally. Right. Um, and we were able to do it, um, what, within weeks? Yeah. yeah. Well, fun fact. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I can talk about this because I don't know when this will be released, but there's some great news coming with, uh, about Chimera here shortly. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tease that one for the listener, but you know, one of the things, though, maybe I should have Tony go first because it, he, <laughs> he left a company that was just all about printing. Added so I'm, 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 I'm curious on what your thoughts were. Yeah, sure. The, the uh, you know, I, I, I left SpaceX and went to Apple. And I was at Apple for um, about a year and a half before I ended up leaving. Um, and what I didn't realize as consciously as I realize it now is having the ability to design and build in the same building mm-hmm. is like super important to me. And, you know, at, at, at Boeing, I was able to do that. SpaceX, I was able to do that. And at Apple, we were outsourcing everything. And so we were really focused on engineering, which is super important, but having the ability to actually see the parts. And so, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I, when I was contacted by my former employer, which is uh, divergent technologies, they said, Hey, we're 3D metal printing uh, automotive vehicle structures or we're developing that technology. You know, the first thing in my head was like, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but they, they said, Hey, um, we'll bring the car up and show you. And they literally had brought their first prototype in the back of a truck, drove it up. They were coming up to Silicon Valley anyway, but they came up and, and I met with them and I, I was just blown away by a, the size of the parts they were printing and how, um, how much the technology had really advanced. Right. And, you know, I, so I spent the, the last uh, um, five and a half, almost six years um, working on uh, developing and then qualifying 3D metal aluminum printing uh, mm-hmm. for the automotive industry. And, you know, we, the automotive industry has a pretty high bar as well in terms of um, quality and integrity and durability and all these kinds of things. And um, I am absolutely convinced that additive manufacturing is is a big part of the future, even if it's not oh, all the future. Yeah. And actually, I, I really liked um, what Ellen, the point that Ellen made about uh, machining, which is subtractive manufacturing. And a lot of people who are real uh, additive enthusiasts will say uh, subtractive is old. But I mean, there's a there's a time and a place. And the reality is, because additive manufacturing kind of is welding, 
uh, parts have a tendency to move around. So quite often you have to come back and kiss it to hit the, with a machine yep. tool to get the, the final tolerances. So the integration of additive and subtractive, I think, is the real Well, at the end of the day, you got to yeah. ED, wire EDM off the build plate anyway, right? Yeah, yep, that's for yeah. sure. So, yeah, but, I think additive, additive is a huge part of, of what we're doing. And I think that as the uh, technology f- proliferates more and more in the company, more and more applications of it will start to pop up. And we'll see, see it yeah, showing I up think, everywhere. I think uh, one of the things you, you, you mentioned there, quality and, and uh, you know, acceptability. I think one of the bigger challenges with additive, though, in the aerospace world is getting our FAA, you know, brethren on board with a lot of it and the way we're going to use it, right? Um, there are still some question marks with additive when it comes, you know, to uh, certain properties. Fatigue mm-hmm. comes to mind, really, right? I think the wrought properties and everything, we're, we're seeing better than cast and mm-hmm. things. But when you're talking about, you know, high cycle fatigue and things like that, that's that's kind of a different story and how we, how we manage that. Although I think our vehicles are prime candidates to to use there because they're relatively they don't have a 30-year lifespan at least not you know quarter horse and dark horse you know halcyon will have to get there Uh, but i also think that additive is really great in the future for quick development there'll clearly be a time when we swap out parts that are additive because we want a little bit more life on it but we it's a mature design and we can move to a you know a, a casting or something like that that will get us that that fatigue life that we want. It's, it's all a balance of time cost. And, uh, but I think getting the FAA over the hump and I, I think they're, they're, they're getting there. The space side. Oh man, I wish, I wish <laughs> yeah. the aerospace, you know, the, the airplane side of things would, were just as, as friendly to, to additive as the space side was, but, uh, there's still some mountains to climb there in terms of qualifying it because at the end of the day, they see it as a weld, right? It's just mm-hmm. a big, Honkin Weld and you know FAA certification. If we go the route of FAA certification outside of uh, for for like dark horse or so, we you know we have military versus the uh, FAA certification we could choose. But and NASA being another airworthiness authority that we could go to. But uh, I do I think, think it's pretty crazy how far it's come. Of like working at GE Power, they're making land-based gas turbines that have to last. 40,000 plus hours Mm -hmm. and even they were printing they were stationary nozzles but they were printing stationary nozzles to go in gas turbines for 40,000 plus hours Um, so like the fatigue is there it's just how do you prove it and it is a lot more on the back end of of like proving that and qualifying that Um, but I do think it's there it's expensive (laughs) yeah and I I do think additive has a long way to go still um, well, a lot of the complications are that you have so many machines there, right? Mm-hmm. And the machine has such a influence on properties, right? Right. Uh, you can't just say, "Hey, here's the parameters I used on a, you know, um, Arcam, and hey, why don't you just go use that on the Velo, mm-hmm. right?" And you, that's not how that works, right? And so you qualify a part or a material on a machine, and and outside of maybe Velo, mm-hmm. that you know that that qualification parameter may be different machine to machine right even this for the same part number for the same part number of the machine right so it's a it's a complicated thing that not all the bugs are worked out yet but it's certain i certainly believe it's future than why we've invested in it heavily here and another <laughs> thing is is that i it's the future but it's the, everybody is sort of realizing that mm-hmm. and the lead times just to go out of house yeah are astronomical, and that's exactly <laughs> the reason why we've bought 
right. a Sapphire and a Sapphire XC, as well as invested in you know DED, is because it's just the lead times are just outrageous. When I was you know a former employee ten years ago, I could get something printed in you know a week, week and a half, mm-hmm. and now it's good luck get in line you're gonna wait 10 weeks yep <laughs> i guess uh the, to kind of lead the the conversation a little bit further it's like where what what gets you excited at the end of the day in terms of you know like cutting edge uh technologies what would you like to see here in the future mm. tony <laughs> um i i i i i <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a lot of, of things that get me excited. I, I think, um, automation, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one of those automation for automation's sake, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of, there are a lot of things I think we can automate, which will help improve, you know, cycle time and quality, which ultimately play into cost. And, you know, you mentioned 18,000 holes. (laughs) Um, I'm, I, I really, I would really like to see an automated holding hole, you know, automated hole drilling system, some kind of a robotic system that drills the vast majority of the holes on, on the vehicle so that, uh, you know, we don't have to be putting up drill plates and having people up there pushing drills. Yeah. It's (laughs) like for historical perspective, you know, titanium hasn't been so friendly to drill through. I think we can get you know, hundreds of holes per drill bit these days of like specialized cutting drill bits that, uh, you know, let's say 250 or so out of drill bits. But back in the SR-71 days, they went from seven holes per drill bit to around 100 and so <laughs> uh, in the early days. So titanium is not something fun. And not only that, it's a, it's a pain, right? I mean, you drill the pilot. Then you drill the actual diameter of the fastener, you countersink, pull it all apart. You Clico, do all of the, the, the stuff that you need to, to to position everything, then pull it all apart, deburr, and then put it all back together and pull the rivets. There's a lot of manual labor associated with it. And so how do you get rid of that that manual labor? Um, the, 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 and it can affect quality so much of just that process. It really can. And, and you know, to your point about it's just difficult to work with. I've heard it called the wonder metal as in like you wonder how you're going to machine. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's and it's so expensive. Right. And so even if you machine it, the chips you're making are expensive chips. Yep. And that's a that's a really good point as well. Some of the manufacturing technologies that we're looking at related to uh, titanium, whether it's the robotic forming of sheets um, or additive manufacturing, when we think about this industry term of buy to fly ratio where you say, how much titanium do I have to buy in order to make this part that's going to fly? And a 10 to one ratio is not uncommon, you know, in Mm -hmm. traditional manufacturing. And I think the technologies we're looking at give us an opportunity to drive that ratio down, which is going to help us compete in this, uh, in this new market. Absolutely. Not only does it, you know, reduce the amount of stock we need to buy, uh, you know, probably, you know, particular technologies, we can reduce the, forms of stock that we have to buy right for mm-hmm. ded it's buying a certain type of wire for powder it's a certain type of powder instead of saying oh yeah for these frames we need a you know two inch thick by 36 by 36 <laughs> and we uh for this other bulkhead we need a three inch thick bar that's you know this long and it really reduces the amount of stock so the supply chain becomes a little bit easier to deal yeah, with absolutely um, yeah i think for me being kind of 
my background being an additive, I, I get more <laughs> excited about kind of the new materials that are even coming onto the laser powder bed market, like niobium C103 mm. um, is a really new, exciting one. And I think could be a potential use case for us for mm -hmm. Dark Horse and, and in the future. Um, so those are the kind of things that I get really excited about seeing. Um, but then on the manufacturing side in, in general, I do the automation of, you know, what else can we use our DED robot for? Do we want to be ever forming panels in house? Do we like those types of things are, are super exciting and I think have a very direct use case here. Um, and there's not a huge, you know, upfront cost for those robots. Uh, I think as Divergent has kind of proven. Mm -hmm. uh, in oh, their so business it's settled. Case. <laughs> We're going to put a drilling head on the, uh, the robot over there. I huh? think it would be cool. Yeah. yeah let's um, go. But yeah, I think that those are kind of my, the top two that come to my mind. Cool. Chris, what do you think? Um, so I'm going to kind of piggyback off some work that Antonio's been doing over there. Ah. <laughs> um, and, and so we've got the first, or, or rather a test panel uh, from that machine formed um, piece of aluminum. And uh, just kind of looking at it and, and, and thinking through like, okay, the machine's got to do this. It's got to move in this particular way to get the panel to look exactly the way it does. And I'm not as deeply rooted in the development of it as you are, Antonio. Um, but uh, it is exciting to be able to find new ways or find people who have found new ways of working with these traditionally hard to work with materials. And, and I think as, as much as that's key is like finding these companies that are developing these technologies and making sure that we're sort of like-minded in the approach, but the, having the philosophy coming from the founders of this company coming down to support pushing into those directions where a lot of the traditional manufacturers, they just won't touch it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I think it's pretty cool working here where almost every day or at least once a week, someone's posting something in a team's channel of like, has anyone seen this before? <laughs> and it's not just like, Oh yeah, that's cool. It's like, Oh, we should reach out to them and like go talk to them. Um, and I think that's like you said, a cool philosophy that I think the founders push of, you know, that's not just something cool that engineers can geek out on, but let's actually see if it's worthwhile. Hey, um, and if it's got legs, I'm all about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah. go. Um, yeah, no, it's like, I feel like all shucks. Thanks guys for the, <laughs> the compliment. But uh, no, I, you know, it's something I really do believe in. It's somebody really cares about something and, and thinks that they can, you know, affect change. Uh, let's, let's try it. Uh, Andrew Wood, uh, one of our technicians that you know <laughs> reports through Chris, he he uh, came up to me and he said, "Hey, hey, hey, Glenn, I got something really cool to show you." And I was like, what? And he's like, "We're gonna make some fire." I'm like, "Let's go! Let's, let's <laughs> I'll stop stop the presses. I'm gonna go see this. I don't care. We have a board meeting. I'm gonna put that on pause because I don't need to go see some fire being made." And so he, um, you know, he had this thought. He's like, "Hey, you know, we were talking about igniters." I'd love to, you know, show you. I had this idea. Maybe we could use like a diesel glow plug. And he went into our thermal lab and, you know, put together a little rig. I uh, was able to, you know, atomize some uh, jet A and, you know, <laughs> with the glow plug being heated up. Had great ignition characteristics. You know, as an engineer, that excites me. Uh, there's clearly some, you know, uh, you know, work to be done there because the back end of a flame holder is a much different, mm -hmm. you know, environment than, let's say, you know, just an quiescent environment that, that he worked with in. But it's that, you know, tenacity, that you know, desire to try something new that bubbled up not from engineering but from, you know, the manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. We need to listen to those things. <laughs> maybe it works. 
maybe it doesn't. Uh, you know, I've I've seen it tried. Uh, David Gregory, if you're out there, I'm remembering your glow plug <laughs> at uh, at a company we work together. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, I've seen it not work in a rocket application. There's nothing that it won't work in a mm-hmm. you know a, a hotter environment that is you know the back end of a the jet engine. But man, I don't care if you're an engineer or you're a, you know a manufacturer. I want I want to hear good ideas, mm-hmm. and especially when you're willing to put your blood, sweat, and tears into something and Let's go. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things about working here is the mad amounts of freedom you get to chase down an idea, mm-hmm. um, especially if it's something that helps push us forward a little bit faster. You know, you're fully encouraged um, to take a risk um, and and be able to, to try something new that no one has ever thought about, even internally inside the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and being trusted by the engineers, the leadership um, to take some amount of money, turn it into a test setup and say, Hey, look, it fucking works. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, that's the entire company. Essentially. Let's, just, let's go try something. Good bleep on our podcast. Yeah, we're we're going to need one right there. Sorry, Marty. Oh, that's, we're a cursing company. I don't think that's any secret, uh, but no. Uh, so I think we've kind of flirted around the subject a little bit. Um, you know, uh, how important is you know vertical integration with like kind of meeting the mission that we're trying to meet here i know my answer but you know (laughs) i and i think i know that you know the answer but i just like your thoughts if there's any tangents there um so for me vertical integration um i got my first taste of that over at spacex um and i absolutely 100 believe in 100 percent believe in it um you know uh we can't always manufacture everything in-house um but the things that we can that make sense, um, let's absolutely go for it. Uh, especially if you know we're early in design, we're doing iterations. You know, we can cut apart, we can look at it, and like mm, maybe if we just kind of tweaked it this way, and we kind of shaved off a few thou over there, <laughs> and then we could just take it straight back to the machining area. Like, hey, Mike, hey, <laughs> Billy, can you can you just kind of like kiss it with the end yeah. real quick, and then we'll take it back and test it. And and it really really just goes along with our uh, speed um, mm-hmm. philosophy and trying to do things quickly so that we can get into the air. Yeah. Yeah. I think when people think of vertical integration, it's, they think of a hundred percent everything in house. And I agree with Chris of like, you're always going to have an external dependency. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it, it's about having the right vertical integration for what we're trying to do so that you're not, stopped by work to go further that that project or that mission and having the right tools in our toolkit in terms of machines and capabilities in-house that we're we can't we're not pausing our whole day or our whole week or our whole month because we have to wait on this machine shop to kiss this part by one thou it's like we have the power to go do that ourselves uh and i i think it is a, a challenge in picking what what areas we want to vertically integrate and what's important to Hermius in terms of of learnings and I, I think it's also um not only the speed aspect but the the camaraderie aspect of mm. working with manufacturing and engineering and I think engineers learn so much more by having those capabilities in house and oh, so true that that directly feeds into the speed right so like if if they're able to quickly iterate and learn from Mike and Billy and the machinists here and, and Chris and his team then 
um, they're able to design and, and do their engineering side a lot faster. And it just creates so much buy-in and ownership right. through the whole process, right? You're not just throwing a design over the fence and mm-hmm. getting the part back. You've sat over there. You've watched the program being programmed. You've mm-hmm. uh, you know actually seen the chips flying, the coolant flowing. And then when that, and you've probably cleaned it yourself and inspected <laughs> it yourself, right? Uh, I am a big believer at this size of a company, there there shouldn't be a quality department. Every engineer should be the yeah. quality department, um, and because high accountability individuals mm-hmm. are the only individuals at this company. Uh, but yeah, it's just so important to have that. And yeah. Well said. Yeah, I, I I mean I totally agree with with both things. I think. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot, Glenn, and you make the point that uh, vertical integration doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be less expensive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for that specific manufacturing operation. But if we vertically integrate the things that are critical to mission success, and then we have control over priority, we have control over if something goes wrong, we can respond very quickly. To mm-hmm. your point, we don't have to wait for an outsource to get something or if something goes wrong, you don't have to get into some kind of detailed contract discussion, which can drag on for days or weeks. Here we can we can get the right people together in the room to make, make the decision and then keep moving forward. And I think that'll play out for us um, as, we, as we move forward into future products. There's a lot of stuff that is not gonna make sense. Like we're, we're not gonna reinvent the wheel and we're not gonna make <laughs> wheels, right? You know, because I used to say that we are never make <laughs> screws but then I heard a horror story about SpaceX and screws, and we might make screws one day. I don't know. Yeah. I, think yeah. I think it's also like an accountability thing of, you know, you might send that drawing to a machine shop and they might see some issues with it, but still, you know, machine right. it as is. And uh, I think having a team of folks that are experts in machining or integrating or printing, uh, they if you're in that team with them and you're one in the same, they're going to be like, that's a terrible drawing. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, hence the question I asked yeah. of Chris was like, well, tell me a time that you put an engineer <laughs> in their place. That's exactly yeah. what I want. It's yeah. like, no, that you don't actually want this. What you really want is this. Or if you put yeah. your datum here, you're going to get a better part. Right. Where a vendor is going to be too nice, you can just be like, no, yeah. we're, we're well, not doing the, that. Well, what the vendor will do if they don't want to do it, they just price it high. And right. then you get three really high quotes. <laughs> right. And you're like, well, I guess this part's... You know, an, an experienced engineer would say, well, I just guess this part's expensive. Yeah. And then you pay somebody to make you a really expensive part mm-hmm. when it should be a tenth of the cost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's so important to me to have that vertical integration portion of the company. Um, you know, partnerships are, you know, somewhat important, right? You know, having good, uh, you know, those mom and pop shops around, you know, Atlanta, around Georgia, around nationally, you know. Having those those companies that can support us because, like I said, eighty percent of our parts are probably going to be made outsourced. Mm-hmm. There's a good twenty percent that are fundamentally core to us that we need to make fast or have a lot of IP that we want to keep in and learn how to make those parts. Right? That's what our machine shop is for. It's more of a quick turn job shop mm-hmm. for us. We're never gonna, and we're it's always going to be more expensive yeah. than anything else, and that's okay because it allows us to go fast and. Completely outsourcing. If if we didn't have that vertical integration, you know, partnerships, like I said, they they can be okay. But man, doing it yourself is where it's at. And mm-hmm. you know, partnerships don't build aircraft. No. And no one's gonna 
that vendor is not going to spend his or her weekend or his or her nights working on those parts like you would. Um, I think we even had Mike working in here in the dark when we were switching over our electricity. <laughs> and it's like there, there's never going to be that level of commitment if it's if you're waiting on an outside source. Oh, perfect example. When I called you when I was in D.C. for a meeting and I was like, <laughs> hey, hey, Ellen, uh, I got uh, I need some holes drilled in some plate that's uh, emergency. <laughs> and you came in and just knocked it out. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I don't. You, you're never going to get that same level of commitment if you're only dealing with external external right. resources. Yeah. Right. Not to say that there aren't some great shops, and we work with a lot of great shops. Yeah. We have a lot of great folks that, that help us. Okay, so I've been saving this one. <laughs> it's a wild card question. Yes. And it's only a wild card because I just got back from my vacation at Disney World for a full week while uh, Hurricane Ian was going through it. So it was like oh, a no. you know a special circle of hell having three kids <laughs> in a uh, hotel room for two days, right? Disney did a great job in entertaining them for as much as they could, but it was still troubling. So I had a lot of time to think about the immersive experiences and everything and the, the kind of brand that that Disney can can bring to bear and, and, and how awesome that well-oiled that company is. And I, I guess a good question would be here. A lot of that is made by their Imagineers, right? And that's also the only acceptable next job for me. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely going to be an Imagineer one day, I hope. That is a life goal. Um, but are Imagineers the epitome of engineering? Is the question. I've never been to Disney anything, so I can't <laughs> tell you. You are missing out. That Disney is a travesty. Is living a life of sadness. It is, it is. Oh, so the funniest thing is, is when you see people, uh, and I haven't been through the Orlando airport much, but when you see people coming into Orlando, they're all happy and they have all the family and they have the backpacks and yay, look, we're going to see Mickey and Minnie Mouse. And by the time they're leaving on the way out, the people on the departures are just like, tired and trodden and <laughs> it's like uh, disney is not a relaxing vacation it's a vacation you have to plan it's fun so you Don't can have a vacation t- when you get home right <laughs> uh, yeah uh, well i got a vacation when i came back to work uh but it's a, it's a fun one um i enjoyed it with my kids and wife i i loved it it was, it was a great time just seeing the joy on their faces but it's it's taxing but Personally, I think Imagineers, the way they can immerse you in that 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 experience and also make something functional. Mm. I I do think there's something to be said for it's really easy to get tunnel visioned into what you're working on. And uh, to like Marty's credit and the marketing team's credit, when they come over and they're interested in Richard's welding or Sam's printing something on the Velo and in that moment you feel important and you feel, you know, you're kind of able to step outside of your immediate bubble of maybe you're stressed out that week or maybe a lot's going on and you're able to see the bigger vision. Mm. Um, I think is more what I think the important aspect of the uh, Imagineering uh, thing to me of just kind of refocus what you're, yeah, you can almost like refocus on what, what's really important. Like, yes, I'm super frustrated that, you know, this print isn't printing the exact way I want, but you know, Marty asked to take a video and you know, now I feel like this is super important for the company and like you can almost see the the larger picture. And um, I think that aspect of it is something that I think is important. And that's something that I think we try to strive to here that I think is, is really positive. I think that's one of the best things about the old school Epcot was, was just that 
you know, you, you could tell a story and you could also tell why it's important at the same time. But now, uh, although I've got to say the new Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster, <laughs> awesome. But Epcot does a great job of educating and entertaining at the same time. And then there's also World Showcase, where <laughs> mom and dad can have a drink and let Mickey Mouse uh, uh, babysit. Right. <laughs> so while I've now thinking back, while I've never been to Disney, I have seen a few documentaries on how they actually set up the Guardians of the Galaxy area. Mm. Or is it? No, it's the it's the new Star Wars Star, area. Yeah. Oh yeah, Galaxy's Edge. Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm gonna get slayed in the comments. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Um, but yeah, uh, just going, seeing everything that they had to do with. Okay, so we're gonna place you know a cantina here. We're gonna place a food stop here. We're gonna place the Millennium Falcon way over here in the back. Um, and then just seeing the pictures of everything that they had to actually manufacture. Mm-hmm. Um, while I've never seen it up close, I can absolutely appreciate the amount of work that went into it. Oh, it's it is absolutely detailed. fun yeah, it's walking detail, through there for me. and looking at all the aircraft like junk parts that they have in that, mm. like a, a, a nacelle uh, from <laughs> and, and, and inlets and things like that from uh, subsonic uh, jets and whatnot. Is there's so many? Uh, oh, there was a uh, a bulkhead. That was in the rise of the resistance. That uh, yeah. from they, they forgot to, or maybe they didn't forget. Maybe they they probably purposely <laughs> left it there. Oh, I'm sure. But it was like proof tested, which was my favorite thing. So in this company, and you guys know, I am super famous at least here for saying we engineer in freedom units. <laughs> we, don't, we do not engineer in those heathen, you know, <laughs> units that that they do over there in Europe and. You know, because there's only two types of countries that have ever been, <laughs> been to the moon, you know, or ever that only two types of countries, those that, you know, design an SI and, and those that have been to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know for a fact the Star Wars, Star Wars and that era uses, uh, you know, freedom units because they had a bulkhead that said pressure, uh, pressure tested to. 30 PSI. A. <laughs> and I was like, ah, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew the bad guys had a British accent and they probably use <laughs> SI. <laughs> I know it. The Empire uses SI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the imagine the Imagineers, I think they're they're it's it's an it's an awesome life goal. Yeah. Um you know, I I, I haven't been to Disney World, but I've been to Disneyland on the West Coast and uh, got to see the, you know, it's a small world uh, display with all the little robots that they made, what, 30 years or 40 years ago or something, you know, singing and, and moving. You know, they give those and, things and haircuts. And that thing is phenomenal. <laughs> and that, and, and the, the, you know, you know, at some point in time, somebody said, hey, this is what you want to do. And people are like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> and the Imagineers are like, yes, let's World's do fair. this. World's Fair. They put that together so quickly. But yes, they give those dolls haircuts apparently every once in a while because the gravity just Really? Acts on it and they have to clean them up so it's a nice haircut every once in a while. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun fact. It is like impressive the amount of detail and that no detail is overlooked. Yes. Um, it, whenever also, you go to Disney. Also, that's what we need. That's how yeah. you make a hypersonic vehicle. Right. Precisely. Oh, yeah. and, and I think that's. Like there are a lot of um, people working here who would be candidates for future Imagineers. Oh. Because you kind of <laughs> got to have that Imagineer sort of. Yeah. We don't know for sure we can do this, but we're we're going to go do it anyway, and we're going to make it happen. And in that perseverance, and, and hey, uh, hey, Bob Chapek, if you're listening, um, <laughs> I'm proposing that we have a uh, you know a sabbatical intern or like you know yes. sabbatical program 
where we send some Imagineers here and we send some aerospace engineers to the to <laughs> Disney. And yes, I'll I'll sign up first as long as we got to get Chris there first. Apparently, oh, yeah. oh clearly, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> well, guys, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, awesome, uh, always. Until next time. Stay classy, San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the future's faster, I was thinking. <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay. Bye.